Good morning, church. It's good to be with you, RCC fam. If you're new here, my name's Adam. I'm one of the pastors. You just saw the other pastor, uh, two Adams, running the show. And uh, <laughs> this week, we are concluding our series in the Gospel of Mark. Did you know we've been in uh, Mark's Gospel for 45 weeks? 45 weeks. Uh, that's a long time. In one book. And we finally made it to the end. I don't know about you, but you ever run a race, like a 5K or something? Usually I reach the end, I'm like, thank goodness this is over. Like, I'm so done. This race, though, I kind of want to keep going. I wish there were more because Jesus' life has just astounded me. And I hope it's been the same for you. Uh, and before we uh, wrap up, Mark, I want to inform you that next week we're starting a new series uh, called We Are RCC. Uh, we're going to spend a couple weeks talking about uh, where we're going as a church, our vision as a church in the years to come, uh, and some of our values. So if you were to peel RCC down to the very core, what would you find? Well, over the next couple weeks, you'll see that. So if you're new here, it's a perfect time to be here because you'll learn all about what we're all about. And if you've been here a while, it's a great time to rally together around the things we hold most important. So I want to encourage you to be here. And next week in particular, we're doing Vision Sunday, something we do one year, one, every year to kind of look back and then look ahead. And we're going to celebrate by uh, baptizing three folks next week. So are you excited about that? That's going to be exciting. So I want to encourage you to be here next week and the weeks to come. It's going to be a good time. But today, let's jump in, Mark. Let me pray briefly. Father, I, I need your help. Uh, your word is powerful enough. Uh, but to explain it, the Spirit of God, you've got to come alive in me and uh, speak through me. And so, God, uh, be here, uh, present, working in the words that I say, illuminating what you've already said. And I pray that the ears, the ears that are listening would be touched by the gospel today, by the resurrection. Be with us today and, and, and be working amongst us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, have you ever had your hopes, like, completely crushed? Yeah, this week, I'm sure some of you are thinking, like, something that you were really looking forward to or really hoping, but then, like, gone. I had something like that happen to me last week. I uh, went to the movies uh, by myself last Monday, because that's what you do for fun when you're a parent. You just go to the movies by yourself. Uh, you just need some alone time. And I, I was getting out of the car, and my wallet fell out of the car. Yeah, I know. And, and I drove away, of course. And friends, this was like the post-Christmas wallet. You know what I'm talking about? Like, it's fat with cash. Like, I got a ton of cash gifts. I'm talking like $250 in my wallet. And I got like four gift cards in my wallet. And I got my driver's license in my wallet and my medical cards in my wallet. And I'm just thinking about all the stuff I lost and all the to-dos now I have to do. Because I got to go to the DMV and get a new driver's license and... I got to apologize to the people that gave me the gifts, like, hey, I lost your gift, you know what I mean? And the wallet itself was actually a gift. My, my sister works at Coach, you guys know Coach, and she bought me this, like, really nice wallet. Gone. Hopes crushed. And I, uh, over the, like, day or two that I was looking for it and I couldn't find it and realized it was gone, I just kind of gave up. Like, there's no way I'd get it back. And if I do get it back, there's no way there's anything in it, Right? Like, there's no way. Anyway, two days later, I get an Instagram message from a guy. He says, hey, uh, are you Adam Matassa? Because I just found your wallet. I know. <laughs> I know, I know. I was like, wow, there are humane people in this world. Jesus. He's, 
he probably like paid himself a tax, you know, like take $100 out and, you know. Anyway, you know what he tells me? I gave it to the security guard at, at the movie theater. I'm like, no! <laughs> You're like the one good person who would get, tell me this. No, you hold on to it, but I have to now go to the security guard, and I go to the security guard, I drive there, and they're like, actually, we gave it to our supervisor. I'm like, oh my gosh, my wallet has been through, through three different sets of hands. There is zero chance there's anything valuable still in my wallet. My hopes are done. I meet the supervisor, she hands me my wallet, open it, all the money is still there. I know, I was like, what? All the gift cards, my license, I was blown away. And you know what the security guard told me? She's like, you know how rare that is? Like, that never happens. And I'm like, Holy Spirit anointing. All right, what can I tell you? Well, my hopes being crushed was nothing compared to the disciples' hopes being crushed when they lost something much more valuable than a wallet. They lost their king. They lost their Messiah, Jesus and on Friday, they saw him die. But even more significant than me finding all of my money in my wallet, their hopes would come back even quicker and even more fervent than my hopes did. Because Jesus, after he died, resurrected from the dead. And his resurrection was proof that his sacrifice on the cross was acceptable to the Father. His atonement was fully accomplished. The resurrection was the Father's amen to the Son's, it is finished. You can think of the resurrection as a receipt of a significant purchase. You know, you buy something really expensive and you hold on to that receipt because I need proof that I actually bought this. It's mine. Well, the resurrection is the same thing. The resurrection proves that we really are forgiven, that Jesus really did atone for us. That you really don't have to pay for your sins because he did. The resurrection is a validation that Jesus' perfect work was completed. And the disciples will soon find that their hopes had not been crushed. That they had, in fact, been fulfilled. Jesus didn't just come to die. He came to rise and he came to reign. And that's what we're looking at today. The great news of the resurrection. And we're going to look quickly at this text and then we're going to draw three applications from it. And I don't know where you are today... But as D.A. Carson says, there's no problem in your life that a good resurrection can't fix. Well, let's see this resurrection. Verse 40, there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with, with him to Jerusalem. So here we find three faithful women who are, who are near Jesus during and after his crucifixion. We got Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene was the woman that was delivered from demonic possession by Jesus. She was clearly transformed by Jesus. She probably has a pretty cool story to tell. Then we also have the other Mary, Mary the mother of James and Joseph. This was Mary, the mother of James and John, two of Jesus' disciples, so a significant figure. And then we also see this woman, Salome, who we don't know much about. And these are women who loved Jesus. But they're trying to put the pieces together. Because their king has just been brutally tortured and killed. And they're scared. You look at verse 40. It says that they're looking on from a distance. So they're there, but they're at a distance. But that's still better than the 12 disciples, isn't it? 
Where are the 12 disciples at? You know, the guys that Jesus invested three years in, his hand-chosen pupils? They abandoned Jesus. They're gone. These guys who were supposed to be strong, who were supposed to lead the church, they're afraid, and they're looking out for their own safety and hiding. And Mark's gospel does this a lot. It does like a little switch of what you'd expect. Here's a yet, yet another example of faithful women who are more faithful than the men. May we be as faithful as these two Marys and Salome, who though they were scared, they stayed with Jesus to the end. And we'll see in a moment that their faithfulness will not go unrewarded. They're about to see the greatest miracle in all of history, the resurrection. Verse 42, when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath. Uh, in the Jewish calendar, Saturday is the Sabbath. So this was Friday evening, the same day Jesus is crucified. Something surprising happens. Verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So we got this guy, Joseph of Arimathea. Who's, who's Joseph of Arimathea? Well, we find that not all Jewish leaders were against Jesus, and Joseph of Arimathea was one of them. He was a rich, influential man, and he serves in the Sanhedrin, the very council that just a few chapters before condemned Jesus and brought him before Pilate to be crucified. Luke tells us that Joseph opposed Jesus' crucifixion to the council. John tells us that Joseph was a covert disciple of Jesus. And again, we see this surprising theme in Mark, this surprising cast of people that call themselves followers of Jesus. Like They come from everywhere, don't they? From all types of different backgrounds and pasts. We, well, last week we saw this Roman centurion who tortured prisoners, crucified people. He confesses Jesus as Lord. We just saw this group of Jewish women who had been marginalized in Mark's society, followers of Jesus. And this Jewish man who's a respected member of the council that crucified Jesus, and he's a follower of Jesus. And we got him coming from everywhere. And you might say today, Adam, you don't know what type of family I'm from. You don't know my past. Well, have you read Genesis? There are a lot of wicked people in Genesis. Have you seen the families in Genesis? There are a lot of crazy families in Genesis. God takes all kinds of crazy people and brings them to himself. And here we see normal, everyday people and wealthy, influential people, religious people, and people who consider themselves far from God. And Jesus changes all of them, gathers them to himself, and uses many of them to lead and influence the early church. So wherever you are today, hopefully you're not like a Roman centurion torturing people, but wherever you are, Jesus invites you to come to him. So Jesus is clearly dead. Joseph asked for his body. It's important that we recognize that he's dead, that he didn't just pass out. His side was pierced. He was definitely dead. Some skeptics argue that he never died. He just survived the crucifixion, and people thought he resurrected when they saw him recovering. But there's no way he would have recovered from this scene that we saw last week. And as far as Jesus, Joseph knows, Jesus is dead. Hope is lost. The story of Jesus is over. Yet even still... What does Joseph do? He asks for Jesus' body. He uses his influence to get Pilate to give Jesus' body to him so he can bury it. He doesn't want it to hang on the tree where it will get picked at by birds and by dogs. 
And this would have been a really bold ask on Joseph's part. Mark even notes here that Joseph took courage when he made the ask because he is advocating for Jesus while he's on the very council that condemned Jesus. You would have to imagine that's a pretty bold move, right? And he goes to a really scary, powerful man to do it, Pontius Pilate. The text says Joseph was a respected member of the council. So he just wasn't just on the council. He was influential on the council. And he's risking, by asking for Jesus' body, the respect of his peers. He's risking losing his job and the years of hard work he put in to reach the pinnacle of Jewish society, the Sanhedrin. I mean, this was a major risk. He's advocating for a condemned blasphemer and criminal. Joseph here is going public with his faith, no matter the cost. He's making clear his affections for Jesus. And Joseph is a model for us all. He brings up a question we should be asking. Are we willing to do what Joseph did here? Are you willing to be bold about your love for Jesus? Would you give up your job to stay committed to Jesus? Joseph was willing to risk it. Are you more loyal to your friends? Or are you more loyal to Jesus? Would you sacrifice your family even for Jesus? I know many brothers and sisters in the Middle East who came to Christ. They came from Muslim families. And when they came to Christ, they literally had to make this decision, Jesus or my dad. It's a decision I had to make early on in my faith. Jesus or my dad. Because many people in Muslim families, if they choose Jesus, their families want nothing to do with them. They abandon them. Friends, this isn't just for Joseph, and this isn't just for people from Muslim families. Every Christian and every generation is forced to face decisions like this. Will you be bold about your faith in Christ, no matter the cost? Joseph was willing to. Why? Well, Mark says he was looking for the kingdom of God. Essentially, he was looking for the purpose of life, and he found it in Jesus. He believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And if you remember, Jesus earlier had said, if you acknowledge me before men on earth, what will I do? I will acknowledge you before my Father in heaven. And to Joseph, Jesus was more valuable than anything on the earth. So he acknowledges him and advocates for him and buries his body. So consider this today. I mean, you're about to face your week, right? You got Monday coming tomorrow, Tuesday. You got decisions ahead of you. Are you ready when it comes to instinctively be bold about your faith for Jesus? Are you ready to make the same decision that Joseph did? Even if it costs you everything. And take heart, friends, because we can boldly risk it all because it's already been boldly risked for us. Jesus already stepped out into the, the unknown for us. He willingly advocated for us by himself when he faced the wrath of God and faced crucifixion, when we gave him nothing. And so in return, we live our lives boldly proclaiming him. His boldness for us spurs on our boldness for him. Let's be like Joseph in this. Verse 44, Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. So Pilate's like, yeah, sure, Joseph, you can take his body. Sure. Verse 46, 
And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. So Joseph of Arimathea, like I said, rich, influential guy. He buys this fine linen, not cheap, wraps Jesus' body in it, and he allows Jesus to be buried in his own tomb. And this tomb was in a cave, a cave big enough where a group of people could walk in. And these cave tombs were not for the poor. These were for rich families. And entire families would be buried in these things. But Joseph sacrifices the entire tomb just for Jesus alone. And once he's buried in there, Jesus is then covered on the outside with a rock protecting the tomb. So grave robbers cannot come in and steal the valuables in the tomb. Other gospels tell us also that Roman soldiers guarded the entrance of the tomb. Chapter 6, verse 1, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? So we got Mary, the other Mary, Salome, on Sunday, knowing where Jesus is laid, want to perform one final act of love and devotion to Jesus, and they go to perfume his body. And of course, they're going to fail at this errand. Why? Because there ain't no body. And just notice here, like, just look at the details here. No one is anticipating a resurrection. No one's like, oh, I wonder if it's going to happen. They're going to anoint his body for burial. They're worried about the stone in the way. They're not expecting the stone to be rolled back. The disciples, where are they? They're running away hiding because they're not anticipating Jesus to come alive again. You think they'd be hiding if they thought he'd come back? No one here is expecting a miracle. They're all grieving, just trying to get through this and move on. But once they get to the tomb, they're met with a surprise. Verse 4, and looking up, they saw this, that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. So the, the stone's gone. Big surprise. Wait, even a bigger surprise awaits. Verse 5, and entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And this would have no doubt been an angel. They're shocked by this. An angel in an empty tomb where Jesus was laid. What's going on? And the angel, aware of their distress, rightly so, calms them. He says to them, verse 6, do not be alarmed. Like, calm down. It's, it's okay. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. So the angel says, Jesus, the real historical human being, the one that you know that you just saw killed, the one who claimed to be Messiah, he's not actually dead. He was. Not anymore. He's not here. And then the angel gives a word of evidence to them. He says, look, look right there. You saw where they laid him. He's not there. And Luke tells us that all that was there was a, the linen shroud, the, the linen cloth. Friends, belief in Jesus is faith. But it's not a blind faith. We have evidence. This is a historical story with eyewitnesses. The angel even is giving proof. And soon Jesus 
will give even more definitive proof as he appears to thousands as a resurrected, glorious being. And the world won't never be the same. And here at the tomb, we see the very first presentation of the gospel, the good news. The first time the gospel is preached is in the very tomb Jesus was buried. And the reason this is such good news, you might be like, why does this matter to me that some guy rose from the dead? The reason this matters, because if Jesus really did rise, that really means he's God. Because only God can die and come back to life. Can we agree on that? And if he is God, well, then we should probably listen to what he has to say about salvation, shouldn't we? And what did he say? That he was going to the cross to die and atone for our sins. And he really did conquer death. And the kingdom of God really has come in power. And we really are saved through faith alone, by grace alone. And if he didn't resurrect, if this is all made up, if all he did here was die and this was fake then he was just another liar or another crazy person. But if he really came back from the dead, you have got to take his claim seriously. C.S. Lewis says, the one thing you can't be about Jesus if he really did rise from the dead is casual about him. You can hate him or love him. But if he rose from the dead, you've got to at least listen to him. Everything hinges on this claim on the resurrection. And for these women, the evidence of the resurrection is already undeniable. They see an empty tomb and they see an angel. And immediately they're given an assignment to share this good news, this gospel, verse 7, with the disciples. Go tell his disciples and Peter that he, Jesus, is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone they were afraid. If Jesus' body has been stolen, which many skeptics have claimed, then there's no good news to proclaim. There's an emergency to be attended to. We got to get the body back. But this being good news, this being a resurrection, the angel says, go tell the disciples and Peter, you're going to see Jesus again in Galilee. He's not dead. He's alive. And notice the angel's addition here. Do you notice what he says? Tell the disciples and who? And Peter. Who is Peter? The guy who just denied Jesus three times. You know, it's universally recognized that Mark's gospel, the gospel we've been going through, is Peter's gospel. Peter was the primary source for a lot of this content. And Peter in his recollection, in his description of these events, can't get over the fact that even though he denied Jesus three times, Jesus still personally wants Peter there to meet up with him in Galilee. Mm. We'll pick up more on that later. And in response, the women are astounded. They stagger out of the tomb filled with fear. And that makes sense that they're scared, right? What's happened each time Jesus has done a miracle as we've gone through Mark? He's scared people. The, the hurricane force winds, the disciples are so scared, Jesus calms the winds with a wave of his hand, and then afterwards, they're more scared of Jesus than they were of the winds. Jesus removes the demon from a man, the demoniac, and the observers in the town are so afraid of Jesus and this miraculous power, they're like, get out of here, we don't want you in our town. 
Jesus, later in Mark, when he foretells that he's going to go, go through the cross, those who listened to him explain it were afraid. When Jesus reveals his power and glory, people aren't clapping like, oh my gosh, this is wonderful. No, they're scared. And that happens here. In Jesus' greatest miracle, being brought from death to life, even his most loyal followers were terrified. This is a natural response to the power and majesty of God. And in their terror, even though the angels gave them an assignment, they don't do it. They tell no one. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? Like early in Mark, Jesus is like, don't tell anyone about my identity. They're not ready yet. What do they do? They tell everybody. And now they're actually supposed to tell. What do they do? They tell nobody. Like kindergartners. Like you guys cannot follow instructions. And this event should not have come as a surprise to them. Jesus has said multiple times, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be flogged, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to be buried, and I'm going to rise. He said all this. Jesus, don't fake anybody out. Psych isn't in Jesus' vocabulary. He's got a plan and he fulfilled it. And yet, verse 8, they're still trembling and astonished. They, like us, need a lot of grace, don't they? They just don't get it. And we know the end of the story, they're going to tell everyone eventually. But at first they're stunned, and you would be too. Like if a guy hit a half-court shot blindfolded, you'd be like, oh, that's pretty cool. If he threw it behind his back blindfolded and hit a half-court shot, you'd be like, oh, that's really cool. But if a guy is blindfolded, hits a half-court shot, and after he makes it, starts levitating through the rafters, you're going to say, let's get out of here. What is going on? This is not normal. How would you respond to a resurrected human being? I think a lot like this. And that's how Mark's gospel ends. Verse 8. You might be looking at verses 9 through 20 and wondering what about that. Well, verses 9 through 20 are not in our oldest and best manuscripts. There are reasons to believe that verses 9 through 20 are good commentary, but not inspired scripture. And if you have more questions on that, we're going to post a link explaining that in our social media page, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I encourage you to read that article check it out. But Mark here intends to end his gospel suddenly in verse 8. I don't know how you prefer stories to end. I prefer resolution. There are a lot of TV shows and movies that have ended suddenly. There, uh, there's an Oscar-nominated, I think he even won an Oscar movie called No Country for Old Men. You guys seen that movie? And the movie ends just suddenly, like cut to black. And I remember after I saw it, I'm like, is the movie buffering? What's going on? Like, there's no resolution. It just stopped. Well, critics loved the ending because there was a deeper message and deeper meaning behind the sudden ending. And I think No Country for Old Men, the, Joel and Ethan Cohen, the directors of the film, I think they learned from Mark's gospel because there's a purpose here. The gospels aren't, friends, just a recollection of everything the disciples can remember. It's not a scrapbook or a memory book where they're just like writing down every story they can think of. Everything in Mark's gospel and in the other gospels is there with an intended theological purpose and an intended order. We've seen that, haven't we? Every time we read a section of scripture, we're like, oh, this is next to this for a reason, isn't it? Well, this ending has a theological purpose. Mark wants to leave us with a cliffhanger. Why? To provoke a response in us. He wants the reader to respond to what he or she is reading. David Garland, a commentator on Mark's gospel, he writes, The ending of Mark goads the reader to react. 
We must now become participants because we are forced to fill in the unnarrated events from the clues Mark has offered thus far. When presented with this ending, we must ask, what happened? What will happen? We must also go to Jesus and not only tell about his resurrection, but tell the entire story from the beginning. Mark is goading us to react. He isn't just showing us Jesus. He wants us to consider, will you follow this Jesus? That's why we call this series, if you notice the graphic, Follow Me. We don't don't just want to learn about him. We want to follow him. And what will you do with him? Mark's asking, what are you going to do with this empty tomb? How will you respond? Well, as we uh, move away from the text, I I would like to suggest three responses. Three things that we should do in response to the resurrection. And the first I would encourage you to do is to let the evidence challenge your mind. And this section is for all my skeptical friends that are here this morning and to build the faith of my believing friends. Let the evidence challenge your mind. Mark 16, 6 says, the angel says, you seek Jesus of Nazareth who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. This is a resurrection announcement. The resurrection, if true, confirms everything Jesus said. And the resurrection, if not true, well, then don't worry at all about this. Like, friends, it's not like we're saying, if the resurrection isn't true, well, still come on Sundays. Like, it's still a great way to live, you know? We'll still hang out. No, that's nonsense. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, if the resurrection is not true, then we are pitiful. Our faith is in vain, and we are still in our sins, and we should be pitied more than all the men on the earth. But the resurrection, if true, then Jesus really is the Son of God. He really did pay our ransom. He really did atone for sinners, and we really are forgiven. So we have got to consider, is this a true claim? Because there's a lot hinging on this. Now, what a typical skeptic says about the resurrection, I often hear two common objections. Number one, Jesus was just another fake Messiah. And number two, the Gospels are myths. This whole Mark's Gospel is a legend. I'd like to interact with both briefly. Number one, Jesus was just another Messiah. You may have heard people say this. There have been tons of Messiahs. Well, even the Bible affirms that, that there have been Many claimed messiahs. There have been tons of messianic movements. But my thought, or perhaps question is, what happened after each of those messiahs died? The movement died. But after Jesus' crucifixion, the movement exploded. In 200 years, Christianity literally took over the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire And the historian, not just the the spiritual person, not just the average, you know, Joe, the historian has to deal with, why? How? Like, this isn't just a faith question. It's a historical one. How did this Messiah's movement go where none other went? Well, may I humbly suggest that this one rose from the dead. All other self-proclaimed Messiahs didn't. 
New Testament scholar N.T. Wright said, As a historian, I cannot explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus rose again, leaving an empty tomb behind him. Let the evidence challenge your mind. This was not just a normal Messiah. And secondly, many people, skeptics, believe the Gospels are myths or legends. Well, you have to come to grips with the reality that Mark is not writing at all like a contemporary legend writer of his day. Uh, Richard Bauckham, who has researched this more than anyone else in recent day, in his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, he explains the four Gospels are closely based on something called eyewitness testimony of those who knew Jesus. And he tells us that Mark does not at all resemble a legend. Mark bears all the marks of an ancient historian. Because Mark bases his entire account on still living eyewitnesses that you can interact with and go talk to. Like even the past just couple chapters we read, Mark drops names. He's like, yo, go talk to Alexander. Go talk to Rufus and Simon and Mary and the other Mary and Salome. They saw all this. These are still living eyewitnesses. In other words, you can cross-examine them. You can get them together, put them in separate rooms and see if their stories match up to see if they're lying. These names are important. Legend writers don't do this. This is what historians would do. Contemporaries of Mark. These are like footnotes. They're like citations. You ever read a research paper and have a ton of things on the bottom, like referencing this source? He's saying, this is my source. Go follow up with them if you don't believe me. And by the way, if he was making up a story and trying to get people to believe it, he would never include Mary Magdalene as a primary eyewitness. A lady who was possessed by seven, seven demons. Your Honor, we'd like to call her up to the stand. Not to mention, women weren't even allowed to testify in court in the first century. They were not reliable eyewitnesses. And we like to call up the demon-possessed one. There's no advantage gained by Mark mentioning women, especially Mary Magdalene, unless Mark is simply writing what happened. And I think that's the best option. You know, some of my skeptical friends, and I have many of them, they say, you Christians, you just need to examine the evidence. You just accept what you've always been told. You ever hear a skeptic say that to you? Just look at the facts. And when I say to them, well, that works both ways. You need to examine the evidence too. Don't just believe what you watched on YouTube or what your professor said. These are huge claims. Do not put the resurrection on the shelf. This is massively important. So, my friends, if, if you're here this morning and you're a skeptic, as we always say, welcome to RCC. Glad you're here. We're full of a lot of former skeptics, and we have a lot of current ones coming. You're always welcome here. And you're welcome to ask questions, any question you want, and stay as long as you want. If you can put up with me, just keep coming. But at some point, friends, you've got to make a decision with Jesus. It's very common in our culture to say things like, I'm on a journey. But at some point, you've got to come to a destination. That's the point of a journey, right? 
you got to make a decision. This journey language often is a nice excuse for never having to commit to anything. It's also one people use about local churches. I'm on a journey to find the right church. Well, you got to land somewhere eventually. At some point, you've got to do something. And to just be on a journey implies I don't have to do anything. So if you're on a journey right now, okay, that's fine. There's time for the journey. But I want to encourage you to do something with Jesus. And we want you to say yes to him. This is the most important decision in your life. What are you going to do with the resurrection? You know, there's an election coming up this year. You probably heard a lot about it. People are saying America's future hangs in the balance of the decision this year. We should be informed in that election. We should pray for our country. Some people uh, put a lot of emphasis on that decision. Well, friends, your eternal future hangs in this decision, what you do with the resurrection. What you do with Jesus is infinitely more important than who you vote for. 2 Peter 1 says, make your calling and election sure. Make sure on that election. Make sure on that calling. I want to encourage you to let the evidence challenge your mind. This is just a brief summary of some of it. And then make a decision. Second response to the resurrection. Let his grace challenge your heart. Let his grace challenge your heart. You know, theologically, we know that the grace of Jesus is universal. You know how I mentioned earlier that we got a Roman centurion, we got a group of women, we got this Jewish council member all coming to Jesus? It's because the grace of Jesus is available for everybody. Anybody can be made right with God if they place their faith in Christ. The resurrection is proof of that, too. But notice here that the grace of Jesus is also personal. It's personal to each of us. Mark 16, 7 says, go tell the disciples and Peter. Friends, these disciples, if you remember, had turned their back on Jesus in his darkest hour. And Jesus tells them, I'm going to see you guys in Galilee. It's not over. We have grieved him a thousand times over, haven't we? And yet his grace, it just will not relent. He doesn't tell his disciples, tell them I'm going to settle the score in Galilee. He doesn't tell them, tell those backstabbing guys they can make it up to me in Galilee. No, he says, meet me there. And he adds, and Peter. It's just a beautiful addition. Why does Mark include and Peter? Well, a practical purpose. Peter may not have known if he was still considered a disciple. Because he denied Jesus three times. He might have thought, I'm out of the clan now. I'm out of the group. And secondly, there's a gospel purpose here. This is a picture of the gospel, friends. You can insert your name here. Tell the disciples and Adam, I'll meet him in Galilee. Tell the disciples and Sherry, I'll meet him in Galilee. Tell the disciples and Sam and Rebecca. And Courtney, we don't deserve to be included here. And yet by grace, we are included. C.S. Lewis said that the earliest converts were converted by a single historical fact, the resurrection, and a single theological doctrine, redemption. That's what we're seeing here, resurrection and redemption. And in Luke, Jesus says, those who are forgiven much, love much. 
if a person isn't loving Jesus much, if they're not loving people much, you know the problem is? They don't know how much they've been forgiven. Those who have been forgiven much love much. When I got my wallet back and I saw all my money in it, my gloomy attitude changed. I was throwing money at the security guard like, here, take 20, buy coffee. I'm like hugging this person I don't even know because even though I had the same amount of money I had before, I realized how much I deserved. None of it. And that's what happened to Peter. If you look at the rest of Peter's writing, especially in 1 and 2 Peter, Peter became known as the preacher of grace, the writer of grace. In 1 Peter 5.10, he calls God the God of all grace. 2 Peter 3.18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 5.5, but God gives more grace. Peter was a recipient of this grace, and he never got over it, and it changed him. And this is good news for us today. Our salvation is not based on our past or our work, but on Jesus' past and Jesus' work. Luther said, we experience Jesus' grace in three ways. Once for all, again and again, and more and more. Once for all, because on the cross, we were given grace and justified. Again and again, because even as we grieve him now with our sin, as we are being sanctified, he keeps giving us grace. And then more and more, we haven't even yet seen the full extent of his grace. But one day, standing before him in heaven, we will. Friend, do you know this grace? That's what Christianity is based on. Can you, like Peter, say, I'm a failure? You know how hard it is for a 21st century American to say, I'm a failure? But the very tenet of the gospel, one of the main course is to say, I'm a failure. Can you say, I have nothing to bring to Jesus? And can you today admit that you need his grace and forgiveness? Don't just be stirred by his grace, be changed by his grace. And finally, let his mission consume your life. Let his mission consume your life. The resurrection motivates our mission as a church and as individuals. You know, you and I are called to fulfill what the women in the tomb were called to do. And what Jesus would later command his disciples to do in the Great Commission. To tell every nation and every people group the gospel of this resurrected Savior. As sure as you're sitting in your seat right now, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have been called to bring that gospel to the world. And the more we cherish the resurrection, the more we cherish that death is not the end, that God is going to renew our bodies, that he will make all things new, that Jesus' resurrection was not the last resurrection because ours is coming soon. And the more we relish in that and in his grace, the more we will commend him to others. We commend what we cherish. We talk about what we love. And if we're not consistent in our witness, it's because we're not consistent in our worship. Mission begins with worship. Johnny Erickson Tata, a Christian author and radio host, 
She's a quadriplegic. She was in an accident when she was 18 years old. She dove into a swimming pool headfirst, and after the accident, she was paralyzed from the neck down in a wheelchair the rest of her life. And she described the grief and then the joy she experienced one day in a worship service. The worship leader asked the people, it was like some 600 people, to kneel down in prayer. But she couldn't kneel. And she writes, Sitting there, I was reminded that in heaven, I will be free to jump, dance, kick, and do aerobatics. And although I'm sure Jesus will be delighted to watch me rise on tiptoe, there's something I plan to do that may please him more. If possible, somewhere, sometime before the party gets going, sometime before the guests are called to the banquet table at the wedding feast of the Lamb, the first thing I plan to do on resurrection legs is to drop on grateful, glorified knees. I will quietly kneel at the feet of Jesus, and afterward I shall spring to my feet, stretch out my arms, and shout to anyone with an earshot, to the whole universe, worthy is the Lamb. And she continues elsewhere. She says, I can't wait for the day when I'm given my brand new glorified body. I'm going to stand up, stretch, dance, kick, do aerobics, comb my own hair, blow my own nose. And what is so poignant is that I'll finally be able to wipe my own tears. But I won't need to. Because the Bible tells us in the book of Revelation that God will personally wipe away every tear. I can't still hardly believe it. I was shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down will one day have a new body, light, bright, and clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope this gives someone who is spinal cord injured like me? Or someone who has cerebral palsy, is brain injured, or has multiple sclerosis? Imagine the hope this gives someone who is a manic depressive. No other religion, no other philosophy promises new bodies, hearts, and minds. Only in the message of Christ do hurting people find such incredible hope. And friends, in the resurrection, we have that hope. In the words of Paul, I consider the sufferings of this present world not worth comparing next to the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Our friends, as we close... We are a people of the resurrection. And we have been entrusted with this me message about the resurrection. How can we be silent? Let's fight the brokenness of this world with hope. Let's speak this gospel to everybody we come in contact with. Let's work until God makes all things new again. You know, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul spends 58 verses on the resurrection. 58 verses. You know how he ends this 58 verses? He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor, all of your labor, all your weary labor for this king is not in vain. Because he has risen. 
It's not in vain. There's an empty tomb in the Middle East, even today. But there's an occupied throne in heaven right now. And life is worth living because of that reality. And friends, we're going to see him soon and very soon. We're ending our time in Mark. But the same Jesus, whose glory fills these pages, fills our souls, doesn't he? And soon we'll see him again, just as you said. Let's pray. Jesus, renew us with hope, the hope of the resurrection. We know there's no problem in our life that a good resurrection can't fix. And you already did, proving that we will as well. So we place all our hope and our life in you. And in our labor today, in the weeks ahead, in the months ahead, in the years ahead, remind us it's not in vain. Remind us we do it so we can hear that well done when we stand before you. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.